2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the road ahead for your money, whether it is time now to be cautious or bullish on stocks. Why Tom Lee says it's the latter. He'll join us in a few minutes. We'll debate his call. We'll debate the markets with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today, Courtney Gibson is the president of Loop Capital Markets. Surat Sethi is with us. Steve Weiss, Josh Brown rounding out our investment committee today. Let's go to the wall. Stocks lower, as you see. S&P, Dow are negative. Dow and S&P, by the way, are on pace now to break their four-week win streak. NASDAQ 100 having its worst week since March the 5th. All right, Courtney, I've got Scott Minard. Uh-oh. Right? He thinks we're going to get a near-term pullback. Why do you say, uh-oh, you should be ready for this? Tony Dwyer thinks we could go down 10%. Jonathan Krinsky says we could go down to 39.50 on the S&P. Rick Reeder says the market's overheating and frothy. And I look at what you're doing in your portfolio. You sold Target. You trimmed Apple. You trimmed Walmart. You trimmed Blackstone, KKR, and Bank of America. If that doesn't say cautious, I don't know what does.
3: Well, it does. Scott, so good to be back with all of you guys. I've missed you. Um, You know, it's kind of interesting. So, as you know, Scott, at Loop Capital Markets, we cover institutional investors, large and small. And a lot of the trends that we saw, in particular on our equity desk over the past couple of weeks, was the supposed smart money. And I do believe our clients are smart, by the way, um, has been trimming, right? When you think about where we were a year to a year, you know, a year to 13 months ago, we were at substantial lows. I mean, when you look at a target, and I want to be very, very clear on what I did with my portfolio, um, I wanted to hedge my risk just a hair at this point in the market right so I do believe in target it's one of the places that uh, candidly if this thing dips down a few more bucks here I'll jump back in because I believe in the long-term story of target I believe in the leadership of that company and I believe in how they've pivoted, but I was up over 100% in a value name, right? I think it was just time for me to take a little of money off the table. The same thing for those other companies. I wanna, again, be clear to the audience that I believe when I bought them, and I believe today in the management companies, in the strategies of all the companies that I trimmed, and I'm still in many of them. When you look at a Blackstone, when you look at a Bank of America, a Citibank, um, Walmart, for example, um, those are names that are long-term names you can keep in your portfolio. And I trimmed them just simply because of the amount of return that I received on those names, and I wanted to hedge my long-term portfolio risk, which I am prudent, I am cautious, but I am still optimistic on this market.
2: I got you. Um, You know, Josh, Part of the problem here is that you've had a lot of stocks and a lot of sectors go up a lot. So like Courtney, there are others who are sitting on big winners and thinking that, OK, maybe it is time to be a little cautious for, for the near term. I've got names and, you know, I'm, I'm talking across the growth and value space over the last six months. Your CrowdStrike, for example, is up 64 percent in that period. Some of the gains are double that, up close to that across the board. Snap, Palo Alto, Etsy, Square. You know, plug power, DraftKings uh, up huge. Then you've got some of the value reopen trades like the airlines over the last six months, which are up a lot, the banks, the casinos, etc. What are you going to buy if so many things are up so much?
0: Well, I mean, I can give you a whole list of things that are, you know, 10 or 15 percent off their highs. So, like, that's a great list that you just reeled out. But there's, there's a contrary to that. I can show you any market cap size you want, any sector you want. So I think there is enough dispersion for you to be able to find opportunities. But I would just say, one of the big, look, I talk to young investors all over the country. One of the biggest mistakes that I see people making is thinking that they always have to have a new trade or thinking that they always have to have a new idea or that like taking action in their portfolio every day is like going to help them in some way, shape, or form. It might be fun, but that's not actually what you need to be doing as an investor. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with being in your winning stocks and not just selling them because they went up a lot, or even worse, because they just had a bad week or two. So a lot of the same things, Scott, on that list that you just named, have been working for a long time longer than six months even so i just look at the market overall and i see that every day there's a new leadership group today it's retailers take a look at gap stores gps stealth right but breaking out to a new 52-week high kanye collection coming out a lot of exciting things new ceo there took over came over from uh, old navy where she rescued that brand um that stock continues to work. It's been working for more than a year. Uh, Macy's is now breaking out dicks. But today, they're really exciting. So today, like, that is, I, I think that is what you want to avoid doing. Like, what's the strongest stocks today? Let me get really involved in those. I just think you want to be diversified and you want to understand that on any given day, you might be envious of another space, another stock, another sector. Sure. But stick with your winners and they continue to work. Look well, at Microsoft, new all-time high today. Yeah, no, I I
2: hear you. But, you know, Steve, one of the the principal arguments in the market, and I I frankly think it's the most relevant one right now, is whether we're supposed to be cautious or, or bullish. I read you the big names at the top of our show who every day now are coming out saying it's time to be cautious. I'm looking for a pullback. Stocks could do this, that, the other thing. But then I've got so many positive signs to hang my hat on that if I could easily make a case why you should be bullish now, easily. Rallies broadening out, Josh said it, that undeniable earnings are good, undeniable COVID cases are falling. The vaccine uptake is rising. There's so much liquidity in the system and the Fed is on hold for a long time. If I gave you all of those, you would come back probably and tell me unequivocally reasons to be bullish in the market. The only thing that counters that is, well, we've been up a lot and we factored in a lot of the good news. So where does that leave us?
1: So, it, first in regards to everybody who you quoted in their cautious view in the market, at any point in any time we've seen it over the last few years through the entire bull market, the market can give you 5 and 10% corrections at any point in time. And if you don't expect them, then you shouldn't be invested in the market because you're in the wrong game. So, that's nothing new. There's one more bullish point, which, which you didn't mention, but it, it sort of dovetails with the Fed being on hold is that the bond market believes the Fed. Take a look at the good economic news that we've had coming out. Take a look at claims today. 10-year yield is down. And we've also had, again, to being rational, we've also had some rationality return to the market in terms of taking those super high flyers and bringing them down and not revisiting them in terms of then looking for another major leg up. So to me, it's never about markets It's about stocks, and I can tell you the P.E., or the price to revenue, or the price to, uh, or EV to EBITDA measures in my portfolio are very benign relative to what the overall market is. Sure, there's one or two in there that may be overvalued, including how I think about it, but generally, I'm finding value out there and continue to stay in those stocks, continue to look to refresh the portfolio. I'm a little cautious. I do expect that that correction to happen or that sell off. But that's just normal course of business.
2: No, I understand. But Surratt, I mean, Courtney's view is very sane and sanguine about, you know, just sort of where we are right now. But she looks at the big winners that she's had ex-Walmart, which perplexingly hasn't really done much even over the last year period. Now, maybe she's owned it longer than that. Um, but you look at the winners that you've had, you feel like, OK, maybe the market's going to have a little bit of turbulence. Is now the time to take some money off the table like Courtney did or just say, you know what, I'll ride it out and I'm just going to keep what I like in, in the full weighting uh, that I have it in my portfolio? All
4: right. Uh, I would look at it through the lens of look at your portfolio and look at the allocation. If you are, as Courtney is, if you're over allocated and these stocks are now a larger part of the percentage that you want in equities, Absolutely, trim it. I mean, this is the time to do it. And then the same thing would be, you know, six nine months ago when equities were way below your allocation. But to to Steve's point and more to Josh's, it's you know, it's time in the market, not timing the market. And and stick stick within the allocation. What we're doing is when new cash is coming into our accounts right now. If I'm adequately allocated, uh, I'm not running out to buy stocks because I do think, as Steve you know mentioned, five to ten percent pullback at any time. And then also we're we're in earnings season. So earnings season, you know, will give you some opportunities for some fallen angels. So I'm not I mean, trimming at but, this point, but, but I'm not really.
2: But, but I'm sorry, but if you if you think we could get a 5 to 10% correction at any time, then you would never be buying anything ever, right? The, the fact of the matter is, at least, uh, at, it, at least I, hold on, I'm looking at your notes here. Um, I'm not deploying anything right now is what you say. When clients give me new money, I'm not deploying it right now. So this time feels different than maybe I, another time would have. No? Am I reading that wrong? It feels, you it, know...
4: Well, it only feels different if I'm under allocated. If I'm not allocated according to their equity allocation, then I am adding to them. But for the most part, if people are and most of my clients are fully allocated at this point. So I'm not really getting aggressive in getting to the upper end of their allocations.
2: Well, I go back to the what should I buy, Courtney, if everything is up so much, even though we've had a little bit of consolidation lately, if everything is still up a lot. That creates the problem of where do I look to buy anything?
3: Well, you know, it's too cold, and I I I want to be clear. Hey, oh
2: No, go ahead, Courtney. I don't know what that was.
3: Okay, Okay, so a couple of things. So Josh is 1,000% right. Um, I usually agree with him on a number of points there is a difference between investors and traders right and so where are you buying what are you buying what are you holding on to what are you selling right so when you look at some names that are pulling back there are sectors and industries that I like I've always got you and I've gone back and forth on the banks what do I love about the banks I like those that have exposure to investment banking to trading businesses I like the exchanges those that are in the market of moving money back and forth and we've seen some pullbacks some interesting ones in some market leaders I'm not gonna tell you who those names are you can do the do the work yourself a little bit here but there are some market leaders that are significantly off their highs that if you can get in and buy and you have a longer time horizon you're going to make money think about who has great leadership who has a business strategy that you can get behind Put those companies in your portfolio and market leadership, of course, put them in your portfolio and watch them work for you. You're going to possibly see some some waves here and there that maybe you add to them. And that's what I've done throughout time in some of those names that you've even given me a hard time on, Scott, over the years. But they've worked and they've worked nicely um, for me. And therefore, I am peeling back. I'm not out of Blackstone. I'm not out of KKR for the exact same reasons I just mentioned to you. So if somebody wants to get in them today, I think you have every reason from a long-term perspective to be in those quality names that are knocking the lights out from an earnings perspective and return perspective on behalf of their clients and shareholders.
2: All right, well, well let me break away from this conversation just for a moment and get to Elon Moy. She has breaking news for us on the infrastructure plan. Elon.
5: Well, Scott, a group of Senate Republicans just unveiled a counterproposal to President Biden's infrastructure package and their price tag is five hundred and sixty eight billion dollars over the next five years. Now, the GOP framework is focused on what they've been calling hard infrastructure and includes two hundred ninety nine billion dollars for roads and bridges, sixty one billion dollars for public transit. $44 billion for the airports, and $17 billion for the ports. Now, it looks like Republicans are also proposing a separate $65 billion for broadband. Unclear at this point if that is included in the headline price tag. And if not, it would bring the total cost of their package to more than $600 billion. Now, the GOP senators do say that... Any infrastructure spending should be fiscally responsible and fully paid for. Their plan also calls for users of infrastructure to be required to chip in, including electric vehicle owners. They also oppose getting rid of the cap on state and local tax deductions as part of any infrastructure plan. And Scott, they make it very clear that any new revenue should not come from raising corporate taxes. Back over to you.
2: Okay, Elon, thank you so much. See how far that goes. That's Elon Moy down in Washington for us. All right, let's get back to our market conversation. Josh, what happens if Goldman's David Coston is right and he says this is peak growth and that equities often struggle just as growth peaks and begins to de- decelerate? That's a longer term market conversation. That's a conversation longer than the next three to, three to six months. What, what if this is as good as it gets? We're going to do a massive GDP print. We may do one after that, too. But, you know, if 10 percent then becomes 8 percent and becomes 6 percent, and then eventually we get back to trend of whatever, you know, two and a half
0: percent. Um, What does that mean for equities? Well, the context there is important, right? Because we're not going to have more than a couple of quarters where the comps are going against pandemic related lockdowns. So obviously we wouldn't expect um, cartoonishly outsized uh, GDP reports and gains in employment year over year et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, a lot of that stuff is going to calm down. The comps make everything look ludicrous. Uh, but I think the market is smart enough to understand that and to a large extent maybe has front run that. So I don't disagree with Kostin that there could be some churn in the markets as people start getting accustomed to, okay, plus 6%, plus 9% for all of these economic data points is probably not sustainable. All right. So we'll have a little bit of churn. I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, we're, we're coming off the fastest 75% 12-month gain of all time back to 1950. Like, that's what just happened. So that's not good enough for you? You need that to go every month for the rest of your life? I, I, I feel like uh, people need to uh, tamp down their expectations, and they'll be able to make it through a little bit of chop as we grow accustomed to the idea that we're headed back to trend growth. I think it's perfectly fine. Let me ask you a question before I bring in our headline guest
2: today about one stock in particular. And I I mentioned the name already, and I'm looking at it right now, and it's CrowdStrike. And it's sort of emblematic of these high growth and, you know, loved stocks that have run a lot. And it's up, you know, 227.5% over the last year. Now, I know that you view it as a long-term play, and I know you view yourself as a long-term thinker, an investor. But does any part of you share what Courtney was talking about earlier and say, you know what, maybe rates are going to continue to move up as we get back to life as normal and stocks like that, as much as I love them, just aren't going to do that well over the next six to 12 months. So I want to trim a little bit, take a little bit off the table. Is that far-fetched you thinking that at all? And if not, that's fine, too. I just want to know
0: what you're thinking. There's no real evidence that growth investors are harmed by rising rates. In fact, the evidence uh, is the opposite. If you look at the rising rate if you look at the rising rate regime that we lived in in the second half of the last decade, uh, let's call it from 2014 uh, on, what you saw was massive outperformance from growth stocks while the Fed was normalizing rates, which, by the way, there's no danger of that happening anytime soon if you actually listen to the Fed. But I'll take the bait. There, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever. There's no empirical evidence. There's no lived experience. There's no academic evidence that rising rates are negative for growth stocks. There might, be some, I, there might be some truth to the idea that higher rates are harmful to valuations. And so that might be the risk that I have to live with in a stock like CrowdStrike. I don't have 50 of these judge i don't have a whole portfolio of these this is the most expensive stock that i own i've just made the point and by the way i've been pounding my fist on the table for hundred dollars per share now uh, on this name i've just made the point that if you're going to own a very expensive stock you should have a really good reason because you're going to have to endure a lot more volatility than in the other names in your portfolio so this is the one that i've chosen chosen wisely so far I think it's the sales force of cybersecurity. And I think cybersecurity is going to be the most important industry in the United States as the economy and the world increasingly moves more digitally. So I don't think you can do anything that Snowflake is doing. Google, Amazon Web Services. You can't do any of that if the network isn't secure, if the endpoints aren't secure, if you have a trillion devices in circulation that can be hacked. You can't do it. So that's why I'm in CrowdStrike. I think it's a 21st century infrastructure play. It's not cheap. It's okay. I can handle the volatility. I'm a big boy. And that's the story there. And if rates rise and that's the reason I don't make money on the stock, you live and learn. I don't think that's what's going to happen.
2: Okay, Uh, that stock's pushing about six percent. Let's bring in our headliner now. Tom Lee, the head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. It's good to see you again. Welcome back.
6: Yeah, good to see you, Scott, and everyone.
2: Yep, I mentioned top of the show, sort of our headline or umbrella debate is time to be cautious or time to be bullish. And I said emphatically, you are in the latter camp. You remain bullish even in the face of, as I said, a number of people from Miner to Dwyer to Krinsky to Reeder who say, you know what? I don't know. It's either euphoric. It's either overheated. It's either frothy. It's either going to be volatile. It's either going to be turbulent. And you say... We could get to my forty four hundred dollar price target sooner than expected. And there's a 50 percent chance we reach it before the summer.
6: That's right, Um, Scott. You know, I I heard all of the comments earlier in the show. You know, the stock market stalled really in the past month. It kind of coincided with covid cases in the U.S. not improving. And then, of course, the outbreak in India and the lockdowns in Europe. And and many sectors went through deep individual corrections. Now it looks like US COVID cases might be legging down in a big way because we're hitting that 40% vaccine penetration, which which coincides with Israel seeing a huge leg down in cases. And I think it started two days ago in the US. That means that June reopening. The visibility on the U.S. sort of coming out of this is much stronger. And I think stocks are going to now have another leg up. Uh, so I think the rolling correction is sort of running its course. And, and yeah, I think easily 4,200 in the S&P, but maybe as much as 4,400 uh, by June. So I think we could have a, a real rejuvenation of the stock rally.
2: So calls of a 10 percent correction. You've heard them on this network. You've probably read them elsewhere, yep. too. Um, you just think that's not going to happen.
6: Uh I mean, there's a lot of valid reasons to, to, to think about that, but there's been so much deleveraging. And as you guys point out, the interest rate environment's really stabilized. I don't agree with the idea of economic momentum peaking as stock market peaking. I mean, for instance, from 1982 to 99, that 17 years, if you cut that exactly in half, the equity market compounded at the same rate the first nine years and the second nine years and economic momentum. I mean, when did it peak? It must have peaked at some, you know, in 1984. So, I mean, you had 17 years of literally the same compounded returns. I think that's a setup that we have today. So, I, I think investors are correctly cautious because COVID really was stalling and rates were uncertain. But there's been so much deleveraging, and we've already seen like things like SPACs and hypergrowth stocks correct. I mean, everything's corrected in at different times. So, I think we've we're done with the correction.
2: But how much of the good news is already in the market, do you think, even with this consolidation period, albeit minor, that we've gone through?
6: Uh, I don't think a lot of good news is priced in, Scott. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, you know, a steel company, Cleveland Cliffs, reported this morning. And the CEO could barely contain his notion that even if you haircut where things stand today, they're going to beat full year numbers by a substantial margin. There's a lot of operating leverage that'll take place this year because the top line environment was so restrictive for the past year, it's now starting to open up at a time when companies are really lean. I don't think most people have modeled the kind of rebound in EBIT that'll happen. You know, we, if we just look at it at the sector level for the cyclicals, they might be by 2022 more than 100 percent higher than 2019 levels on using consensus revenue estimates but 2008 operating leverage. So in other words, if you just use an old playbook, they're going to crush numbers for the next two years. Josh Brown has a question for you, Tom. Josh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, Tom, I thought one of the strongest points that you made in your piece, and we were talking about volatility in the A Block. Uh, we frequently talk about volatility on the show. One of the strongest points in your piece was that the Russell 2000, and you used the IWM uh, as, as a stand-in for that um, ETF. But you're saying, like, it's doubled in the last 13 months, but you've had 13 distinct episodes where you've had to endure a greater than 5% um, dip, let's call it, and in some cases much worse than that. Uh, That's kind of been the experience in all of the major averages And that really doesn't feel like it's anything new. Maybe it's just something that we need to tell people about. Like, this is the normal experience of a stock market investor because we've had 40 million new brokerage accounts open in the last year. And they may see a 5% dip in the market and think something's wrong. So can you talk a little bit about what what your research has pulled up there and why it's so important for people to get comfortable living through volatility?
6: Yeah, that's a great point, Josh, because... You know, progress, especially stocks, aren't a straight line. I know there's a tendency to believe that if a, if a, if a story has a fundamental growth trajectory, uh, it should be steady gains. But as you know, because of how liquidity and positioning and uh, sentiment can cause stocks to overshoot and undershoot. And that's absolutely right. The, the Russell 2000 every month has a 5 to 10% drawdown. We just went through another 5% drawdown. And the one thing you don't want to do in a portfolio is view that drawdown as as evidence that the trend has changed. I mean, if you take a look at the bigger fractal, Russell 2000 is super sensitive to the trajectory of COVID. If COVID is receding in the U.S., and, and by the summer, we could be down to like 6,000 cases a day if we match Israel, that's going to be really good for how people feel about the world opening up and the Russell which is chocked full of epicenter stocks, will be the leader. And already year to date, it's the best performing index. Nothing has changed since March 31 to say the Russell should be ceding leadership. But you're absolutely right. People have to endure these drawdowns. They're painful. And it's painful when it's a non-consensus because you know it's one thing to say everyone likes FANG and they're down 5% and you've got a lot of buddies to put your arms around. When it comes to cyclical stocks, they are trickier because not a lot of people think they're great stocks to own. So you're right. These drawdowns make people a little more scared than they should be.
2: The the, the risk, of course, is and and I don't want to belabor it, but um, I think we would both agree that you keep using the example of Israel where, you know, the vaccine has been far less politicized as it is here. The uptake has been far more great than it has been here. And that remains an issue and still lends to that COVID risk story that if not enough people are willing to take the vaccine here, it's always going to be this underlying issue, albeit lower, but it's always going to be there and always threatens some part of the recovery. The the point number one. Point number two is I'd like your reaction to you used to say that a VIX under 20 was a sign in and of itself of a screaming buy for stocks. Now that we're as low as we are and we've been there for as long as we've been there, I'm wondering now whether you think it's a sign of a reversal of that, whether it is a sign of too much complacency and too much ignoring the risks that are out there.
6: Yeah, uh, both great things to talk about, Scott. Um, on the vaccine hesitancy, you know, we have to keep in mind, Israel is peaking around 62 percent vaccine penetration. But the first milestone that they hit was 40 percent. And while cases didn't improve when they had 20% you know vaccine penetration, as soon as they hit 40%, there was a huge leg down, and then uh, they had another leg down as they crossed 60%. And now it's plateauing. So I think in Israel, it's you know 30, almost 40% of people aren't going to get back, aren't getting vaccinated. That's pretty close to the numbers that McKinsey surveys are showing that 65% of Americans are willing, and then there's another 20% that are unsure. But if you get them. To cross over, you know, we could be at 70% this year. Uh, I think we we could see a, a dramatic drop-off in cases, again, if we, t- if we follow Israel's uh, path. With regard to the VIX, uh, I think it's a very strong signal that the VIX is under 20. We're already going to see the benefit of that. And then if we get economic momentum improving, hedge funds, which have really dialed down their leverage and they've degrossed for multiple events, including you know the prime brokerage leverage unwind, this has kept people cautious. And the Bitcoin plunge over the weekend, I think, really spilled over Monday, Tuesday into the broader market. There's a big opportunity for the market to go risk on with the VIX sitting here. And if, you know, uh, as my friend Tom DeMarc would say, if you look at the DeMarc count, I mean, the VIX could be in the 12 levels this year at 12. That's a very different signal for stocks relative to valuations and also relative to bonds.
2: We appreciate it, Tom. Always give us something good to talk about. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Tom Lee with Funstrat joining us once again today. Uh, Steve Weiss, before we take our break, um, your moves are interesting. You sold UPS, right? Mm-hmm. W- what's the reasoning behind right. that for, for somebody who has owned XPO? you've added to that recently. I guess you own FedEx also. Is it simply a matter of I don't need all of these, or was it something specific about ups?
1: No, there's nothing specific about ups. I just thought it was more expensive than FedEx, which I have a good-sized position, and XPO, which, as you mentioned, I did add to, and I think it's got much more upside. So I didn't need that exposure. I was looking to concentrate the portfolio, get rid of some names that are sort of there, sort of not there, so that was the reason I got rid of EPS. I want to add to other stocks.
2: You bought um, Ericsson calls going out a good ways to 2022. Can you tell me about that one?
1: Sure, as you recall in the last show, I said Ericsson's gonna have a great quarter. They did, they were up 5% last year. I added to the stock in advance of the quarter, but I bought the calls going out to next year because it's rare that you see calls that give you that much time value that have essentially no premium whatsoever. No time value premium. So that's why I bought that. I thought it was just a great way to, again, increase my position on Ericsson. And if you and just go into what what was said earlier on the broadband bill, that's Ericsson. That's 5G. So you'll see more and more spending go there.
2: What do you what do you quickly think about what what Tom Lee said about, you know, amid all of this caution and some negativity that he thinks you, you know, there are very bullish signs for stocks, regardless of what anybody else says. And you could actually reach that up end of his target sooner than people think.
1: I disagree. I like Tom's work. I disagree with a lot of what he said. For example, using Cleveland Cliffs as the example, which I own. And maybe I shouldn't say this. The company came out and pre-announced a phenomenal quarter. And they came out and basically said, OK, we did what we pre-announced. The stock went down. It was already in the stock when it traded to 20. Will you get another leg up as they execute? Possibly. In terms of the VIX, one of the reasons why I cut back my exposure is when the VIX got back to 16. So yeah, the long, long long-term average of the VIX is in the lower teens, but to me, that gets to be more of a sign of complacency. So I'd like to see the VIX actually shoot up a little bit, see the market continue to consolidate here. That's why I think get more bullish, not as the VIX goes to historically lower levels. All right.
2: All right. Let's take that break. We have an uptick in travel demand that's pushing the airlines today. American, Alaska, Southwest, all up over 30 percent this year. We'll find out what their latest earnings are signaling now. You can. Oh, as a reminder, you can watch or listen to us live on the go as well on the CNBC app. We're back in just two minutes.
7: Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Be more difficult for the Federal Trade Commission to recover money stolen by fraudsters. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously today that the FTC does not have the authority to seek court orders for restitution on behalf of consumers. And in a 6-3 vote, the high court declined to put new restrictions on juveniles being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The ruling says that judges don't have to determine a juvenile is permanently incorrigible before imposing a life sentence. A 31-year-old man who tried but failed to detonate a pipe bomb inside a New York City subway station in 2017 has been sentenced to life in prison. The defendant told the court that he's deeply sorry, but the judge in the case said that the punishment is appropriate for what he called a truly barbaric and heinous crime. And workers have returned to that FedEx facility for the first time since the shootings last week that left eight people dead. Two checkpoints are now in place before employees can enter the parking lot. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you.
2: All right, Rahel, we appreciate it. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. Number of airlines out with earnings, American and Southwest reporting stronger bookings, ramping up their schedules as well. Let's talk about some of these names, uh, maybe not those specific ones. But, Courtney, you own Delta Airlines. I mean, now sort of the, the real work for the airlines begins, right? You've got to get business travelers to come back where the real money is made.
3: Yeah, you do. But, you know, the good news about that is you are seeing the leisure travel pick up. I mean, Scott, I don't know if you've tried to book a flight for this summer at all. But, I mean, flights, flights are pretty, pretty close to capacity and ticket prices are skyrocketing. Um, I actually took a flight out to New York recently. Yes, I'm fully vaccinated, for those who, who are wondering. I took a, a flight to New York for business purposes. I mean, the flight was over $700 for a coach ticket. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, as we start to see things turn um, and we start to see some of the return to office come into play, as we start to see some of that business travel pick up, it's going to be gangbusters for certain of the airlines. And the reason why I like being in Delta is because of the brand. Ed Bastion at the helm is tremendous. And obviously they've done the right things throughout this pandemic in my perspective to maintain customers, to treat customers well. Um, And that customer brand loyalty is gonna pay off in strides I think as we look towards the future. And I think it's about time they start to really look at bringing some of those planes back in because I, I do believe that as we get into the fall um, the the amount of travelers, both leisure and business, is going to pick up in a way that, that the world is not expecting.
2: Surat, Delta, core position for you.
4: It is, uh, and I will just replicate. I mean, Courtney hit the, the nail right on the head. The thing with Delta is best management team, best balance sheet. They really didn't do what the others did, American and United, in terms of uh, selling a lot more stock and raising cash. So I do think it's a wait and see period in this one. The stock will reflect the, uh, the the future growth of business travel before it happens. It's just a question of holding on. And I think if you're going to be in the airlines, which we like this one, this is our core position.
2: All right. Steve Weiss playing this with a fairly sizable move today into Boeing.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and not just today. I had owned the stock, as you recall, when I was... Pairing back the portfolio, I sold half the position. Well, I added to it over the last few days. Stock got hit, continued to get hit, when they announced that the CFO retired. That's not what hit the stock, in my opinion. What hit the stock is that they extended the contract of Calhoun, the CEO, who I'm not a fan of. But I took the opportunity to buy the stock, and I think it's a great trade from this level. So I've got a large trading position in it. I'm not going to own it for a long time just to make some dough in it, and then I'll be out.
2: You can't be that much of a hater if you've been buying the stock. <laughs> if you've been buying the stock. I mean, hey, man, come on, you
1: man. Know, it, you it just couldn't resist the can. shot. <laughs> I, I couldn't, and I think it's well-deserved the shot. But uh, look, if the airlines do well, Boeing's going to do well, pure and simple.
2: Yeah. All right. From airlines to autos, a stock up 35% this year in that space. It just got two big bullish calls as well today. We'll reveal it. We'll trade it. We'll do it next.
8: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
2: All right, guys, let's talk about these bullish calls on Ford today. Upgraded to outperform at Wolf. Price target goes to 15. Catalyst call at Deutsche. Buy there. $12 is the price target. Stock's a nice winner today. Josh, you own General Motors. Nobody on the show right now today owns Ford so you prefer GM? I mean, these stocks have tracked each other pretty well.
0: Yeah, I think Ford is largely moving on stuff that has to do with the, uh, the, the Mach-E, their, their electric vehicle, whether or not it's really taking share from Tesla at that price point in that market segment. And then, of course, like every other automobile OEM around the world, as we get into the second half of this year, there will be more news about new models uh, new things they want to do with electrification. They're on the same parallel track with uh, GM, with Benz, with Volkswagen, um, with Volvo. So I just I just would expect this to be like a, a trade on electrifying the vehicles, doing it profitably, uh, taking share. And if, if you look at it that way, it'll probably move in line with GM. I just think GM's a better run company and has more going for it. So that's why I'm in that one versus Ford. Understood. Weiss, you sold General Motors.
2: Farmer Jim's not going to be very happy with you, but tell I us why.
1: No, and I hope he's not watching. Look, <laughs> I looked at my stocks. I said, what's, what's got more upside? And GM, I like Mary Bauer. She's done a great job. But the fact is, is that Volkswagen, and I own Porsche also, which controls Volkswagen voting stock, has much more upside. And the other automakers, any of them, except for Tesla, aren't even close on EVs to what Volkswagen is Allocating fifty billion to build charging stations, their own battery plants. I mean, GM's not even the same ballpark. So that's why I like Volkswagen. They'll sell more EVs Weiss, next year GM has or the year after than Tesla. <laughs> that's great. Hey, that's
0: Weiss, great. The, the Volkswagen the play, the play on GM is autonomous.
2: W- hold on, hold on, Josh. Hold on, Josh. Go ahead. Then Weiss.
0: They're all electrifying, but only one has an autonomous unit that is further uh, advanced than Google's Waymo and further advanced than uh, Tesla's Autopilot. And Cruise has the potential to be a a bigger business in autonomous vehicles than any of the others. I'm not saying it will shake out that way. I'm saying it has the potential. They have that lead. uh, And that's an underappreciated part of the GM story. I don't think shareholders are baking any of that in at an $82 billion market cap. Volkswagen doesn't have that.
1: We're going to disagree. And they are baking it in because that's why a lot of people own it. What what GM doesn't have that Porsche has that Porsche, the overall stock and VW Porsche, Porsche has been killing it, selling more cars in the pandemic than anybody else. Look at the valuation that you've got on Ferrari race. If Porsche spins out that subsidiary. Into a standalone, they've talked about. There's been speculation, 25 percent coming out. That'd be equivalent to the market value of Ford. So they may not they have. They did cruise, not sell. They did not sell more Porsches much than, further along.
0: They did. I They go. did not sell more Porsches this year than uh, Chevy Tahoes. There's
1: not a chance. <laughs> that's not what I said, Josh. It's <laughs> not what I said.
2: All right, I got to go. I got to go. We'll come back. Intel reporting tonight, of course. Semi stocks up 90% in a year. We'll trade it next. Semi's under some pressure today, but the SMH, that's the ETF that tracks the space, is still outperforming the major averages this year. It's currently less than 5% away from record highs. Now, one of the sector's underperformers this year, Intel. It reports earnings later today. Got no ownership on the desk, but, Surat, you do own NVIDIA and Qualcomm. By the way, the Intel CEO, Pat Gelsinger, is going to be on with Jim on Mad Money tonight. Pre-announced, really. I mean, you sort of know what what the deal is with this business moving forward. I don't have anybody stepping forward today and buying it on this show, right? I mean, Surat, you wouldn't buy Intel. Why, Why do you own NVIDIA and Qualcomm instead of Intel?
4: So Qualcomm is the 5G play. I mean, that's that's the rapid growth there. NVIDIA is artificial intelligence, data centers, gaming. Intel right now is kind of no man's land. Is there a true value stock? What's the catalyst? But that's not to say I'm not looking at it closely. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what their strategy is laid out. Uh, and it could be a good buy. They've got a great balance sheet and dividend. But I like those two for the growth right now. And this one is getting more and more interesting for me.
2: Josh owns NVIDIA. Weiss, you own Micron. You trimmed it a week ago. You sold Taiwan Semi, though. Weiss, why'd you do that? That's the name you've mentioned on numerous occasions on this show.
1: Because I keep adding to Corvo. Uh, to me, and that stock's up today. To me, that's one of the best positioned semis out there. Uh, Taiwan sort of ran its course. It's not a cheap stock. Corvo, by that, you know, by that measure, sells for about a 30% discount to Taiwan Semi. And it's also the reason I sold Qualcomm. I just thought that and Skyworks much better positioned.
2: All right, don't forget again, uh, Gelsinger, Pat Gelsinger, CEO Intel tonight with Jim on Mad Money. There it is right there, six o'clock. It's a CEO exclusive for Jim. We'll do final trades next. All right, it's time to answer your questions. Now, Courtney, a video question for you first.
4: Hey everybody at the Halftime Show. Absolutely love your show. And I've been watching for a long time. My question is Square versus PayPal. If you had to choose one, which one? Go Caps.
2: That's right. Go Caps. Love the hat, too. All right, Court. uh, Square and PayPal, you own both. You own both. But if you had to choose just one, what would it be?
3: I'm not. I'm splitting the baby, Scott. Um, I think it's a situation where, okay, so short term it's Square, long term it's PayPal. There you go. Um, does that solve the problem there? It does. Um, but I mean, can't it wasn't candidly, that hard? Last year, it wasn't. But I do like them both because if you think about what last year did, which was transformative in the marketplace, what happened was we actually brought America into what call it 74% of Chinese are using, which is their digital wallet. That is, trend is only going to continue. And although it's all sexy to talk about crypto and what PayPal's doing with crypto and what others are doing with, with with crypto on those platforms, it's actually the potential for PayPal and Square to to take pieces of the kind of traditional banking wallet. Imagine depositing your check into PayPal, right? We're already trading stocks on Cash App, so you know I think it's it's a long term trend, and there's a lot of room to run in these names.
2: Okay, Josh Brown, video question for you.
5: Hello, my name is Mitchell. I'm from Baymer Washington. I'm a huge fan of the show and admire all of you on the panel. My question is, with the housing market so hot currently, do you think it's a good time to buy into real estate companies like Redfin and Zillow, who've been off their highs for a couple of months now? Thank you so much.
2: Mitchell, thank you. Josh Brown, the answer.
0: Very simply, I would skip Redfin. It's a very traditional broker just offering human services at a lower price point. Uh, boring business, not a big fan. Zillow is much more exciting, has bigger potential. So that's the one I would buy. I don't own either right now, uh, but Z is on my radar. Steve Weiss, multiple inquiries about
2: GMVHY, which is a new buy, I believe, for you, tell us.
1: Entain, and they are the, one of the largest online gaming and sports betting companies in the world, 20 countries, it's so much cheaper than DraftKings. This company actually makes money. It's cheaper okay. than Penn Gaming. All right. And plus, most of their business has been shut down in Europe.
2: All right. We'll make that your final trade for time's sake. Thank you for that. All right, Josh, then Court, then Surratt. Just please give us a
0: name. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. <laughs> Store capital. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I you threw you me off that. with one word. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, clearly.
2: All right. You know what? We got to go. That does it for us. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
3: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need.